Support comes from Clipper Vacations with savings on a Victoria, B.C. getaway during the spring sale. 20% off a Clipper Fast Ferry round trip plus two nights hotel and kids travel at half price. Details and booking at clippervacations.com NPR. From KUOW in Seattle, welcome to Soundside. I'm Libby Dankman. And we're spending most of the show today examining the implications of a huge announcement from Microsoft-backed OpenAI, a new text-to-video tool that produces videos far more lifelike and high-quality than anything we've seen before. A woman in sunglasses strolling down a busy Tokyo street. An octopus crawling along the ocean floor. A house cat begging for treats. At first glance, they seem like innocuous stock clips that you find in a video library. But these are actually short glimpses of the cutting-edge capabilities of artificial intelligence. OpenAI announced its new video generator technology dubbed Sora last week. The company says it takes short written prompts, just a couple of sentences, and turns them into hyper-realistic clips. And reactions to this have ranged from incredulity to existential dread. We're talking today about the potential of this new tool, the dangers of its misuse, and its possible impact on the creative economy. And I have a panel of experts here to help with the conversation. Cade Metz is a technology reporter at The New York Times who covers artificial intelligence. Aaron Heidenreich is a filmmaker and director of the documentary films The War to Be Her and Rising Suns, and an upcoming feature film about the underground operation of trafficking of abortion pills from Mexico to the U.S., And Jevin West is an associate professor at the University of Washington's Information School and a co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public. Thank you, everybody, for being here. And I just want to start by getting a gut check from everybody. Cade first, then Aaron, then Jevin. What were your initial responses to seeing these really vivid videos that OpenAI created with Sora? Well, for better or for worse... I've been for the past 10 years covering this technology. So in some ways, I'm not as amazed as probably I I should be. But what was so interesting was as I was pulling together a story about this at the New York Times, watching the reaction of my colleagues um, was telling, uh, shocking in some ways. There is amazement. But as you indicated, also this sense of dread. And I I will say that I've seen this time and again, and knowing how this technology is built, this is going to keep happening. And that's why that sort of dread is worth paying attention to. Yeah, and the speed at which it's changing, right? And we're going to get to that in just a second. Aaron, as a filmmaker, I mean, seeing this for the first time, the capabilities of Sora, your reaction? Yeah, at first it was amazement, excitement, you know, a lot of intrigue. I was in awe that this was happening. And then that excitement started to kind of spill over to anxiety. And then it may have gone into full-blown panic for a moment. And the idea that I might have to find a new career or at least uh, get a backup. Yeah, the impact on jobs, a huge concern uh, we'll be talking about today. Jevin, as a misinformation specialist, your reaction? Well, my reaction, of course, runs to misinformation and the impact it could have on this, you know, this big year for us, especially as we get closer to November. So that's the first thing that runs to my mind. Probably the second thing that runs through my mind when looking at those videos is where did they get all this data to do this sort of thing? 
because in order for them to do what they're doing, and it is amazing. I mean, it's, it's enough for you to pause and have to watch the video again and again to see where there might be aberrations. And there just don't seem to be very many. But the question that keeps springing through my head is where did they get all this video data? Yeah. How much has been scraped? How much of people's work has gone into this and is uncredited? The only aberrations I saw, there's the on the house cat video, there's sort of this haunted like second left paw that creeps out, which <laughs> really I think is um, going to stick in my head for some time. But shockingly few flaws in the videos, if indeed, uh, you know, the stuff that is being released is representative of, of SOAR's capabilities right now. When OpenAI's Sam Altman is releasing the prompts that people are giving him and tweeting out new videos, those are a little less impressive than the official ones released on uh, the Sora homepage. But still, I mean, shockingly capable, this this new technology. And Cade, what is actually happening here? I mean, if ChatGPT is this autocomplete on steroids, it recognizes patterns in uh, text and then gets you the next best written answer to your prompt. What's actually happening when I see Sora create a cartoon kangaroo that disco dances? This is the same type of technology. It's called a neural network, and it learns tasks by analyzing data. So with ChatGPT, you feed essentially all the text on the internet into this neural network, and it identifies patterns in all that text, and it learns to generate text on its own. With this system, you feed videos into it, and it spends months, likely, analyzing those videos, identifying patterns in them, and then it can generate video on its own in much the same way chat GPT generates text. I think it's worth underlining the fact that it is flawed and that this release, so to speak, or this unveiling was tightly controlled by OpenAI. Um, even when I went to their offices to see it, they would not let me use it. No one outside the company, um, except for a few trusted testers, are allowed to use it. If you get your hands on it, you're going to see more flaws. I've talked to people who have used it and talked about trying to generate a video of of, of someone eating a, eating a cookie, and the cookie is pulled away from their mouth, and there's no bite in the cookie. If you look closely at the video that you mentioned of the the street scene in Tokyo, there are cars streaming by on the left. And if you look closely, the cars suddenly disappear into the ether. These types of flaws are also uh, an inherent part of neural networks. And it's difficult to get those flaws out of them. And we should keep that in mind as we talk about this. And why? Because the AI doesn't actually know what's happening in physical space. It doesn't understand consequences of actions in an actual real world setting? It's all about probabilities. So as it generates essentially the next scene in a video, it's all about what is the likelihood that that is the next scene? Um, much like with, with text, what is the likelihood that the next word is this particular word? So those probabilities get more and more accurate as, as you feed more and more data into the system, but you're never going to get it to zero. There's always going to be those types of flaws in the system. It's just a matter of 
Can you build on top of that to reduce the flaws? Can you mask the flaws? There are ways of dealing with them, but they are always going to be part of the underlying system. Jevin, how does this release land with you? Does it give you pause about the actual capabilities here when, for example, a reporter who's covering this stuff like Cade can't get access to it? I I think Cade described it perfectly. Tightly controlled release. It reminds me a lot of Google's release of their Gemini tool, which was similar, where it turned out later on that it wasn't done in real time as it looked as if it was uh, when they released the video. And they received a lot of criticism for that sort of thing. And I'm certainly not claiming that the capabilities that have been demonstrated with this new tool, tool that OpenAI has released aren't remarkable. They certainly are. But that tight release and the fact that Cade can't get access uh, tells me that um, there are things that they're really working hard to red team, as they say, and to try to to figure out. And I think it's going to be challenging. I mean, text is challenging. Video is even more challenging. Yeah. I mean, you saw that when one of your colleagues, Cade, uh, got access to a Microsoft chatbot that you know, started to have weird obsessions with him, the the Sydney episode, you know, when these things get released and, you know, people start probing and really trying to put it through its paces, there can be PR nightmares, right? So it's understandable that OpenAI is trying to be really careful with this stuff so far. Um, any reflection on that? Absolutely. And they're, and they're upfront about that, right? When I met with them last week uh, to talk about the system, They want to put it out there. They want the attention. Okay, the stakes are high here. They're looking to raise money to continue building this type of technology. They're looking to hire what are the most expensive researchers on earth. And so they're they're looking to bring attention to the company, obviously. But also what they were upfront about is we are not putting this into the wild. It's not ready to be in the wild. We're going to have, as you said, experts red team this, which means look for those flaws and and poke at it. And that's what happened with that Sydney episode is, you know, a colleague of mine, a columnist here at the Times, he was able to get beyond the guardrails uh, on that system, uh, essentially fooling it into doing what it did. And that's what that team of red teamers is going to do. Um, they're going to tr- actively try to poke holes in this Find out where it's flawed, where you can really um, use the system to spread this type of disinformation that we're all so concerned about. Aaron Heidenreich, we're going to talk about the downsides plenty in just a second. But when you view these videos that Sora can create, what about the promise here? I mean, What kinds of new possibilities come to mind creatively when you see what is capable with just a text prompt? You know, is there any applications that you see immediately to filmmaking that could be additive? Yeah, I definitely see how it could be used as a really helpful tool to have in my arsenal in the filmmaking process. When you're making a movie, you need to get a lot of collaborators, financiers, actors, everybody on board with this vision that is just inside your head. And so I use a lot of tools to try to bring to life a visualization so that we're all on the same 
looking out the same direction for what we want to create in the film. And so I definitely, I'm, I'm a little excited actually to be able to use something like this to see where it can go in terms of a, a storyboard, you know, maybe generally be able to see, hey, we can use this to depict what the action might be in the scene, or, you know, maybe with a production designer, I can, you know, give a little bit more of a flavor to the actual tone I'm looking to create. I also feel like it's interesting to think about what this might do for the accessibility to filmmaking in general. The barrier to entry into filmmaking is is really high. And to even sustain a career in this business is really, really difficult financially. It takes a lot of money to make a movie, and it's really hard to do without financial support. But over time, we've seen that when different tools have come into the filmmaking process, it has opened it up to other filmmakers that may have not had the opportunity to make films before, like with, you know, digital cameras in the early 2000s or editing software, or even like iPhones, right? Like everybody can make a movie. But but this is very different than an iPhone because um, the extent to which you can make a film, how big you can think, if you're somebody in... Cleveland, Ohio, and you want to make a film about, you know, I don't know, 1920s Shanghai, China, you know, you're not going to be able to do that with an iPhone, but you you might be able to do it with with Sora. Yeah. So there's a democratizing process that we've seen over the years, again, with technology and also with platforms, YouTube, things like that, that perhaps this will be an extension of. Uh, Jevin, any reflection on that, sort of the promise of this technology? Because, again, we're going to get into a lot more of the pitfalls here as we go on. Absolutely. There's certainly promise. And we've seen that in the education world, just with the current tools that are at hand. We are concerned as as teachers and uh, instructors in education about how things these are used to plagiarize or how they're used to to write essays that the students never wrote. But at the same time, we're seeing really remarkable things that the students are able to do with this technology. And it's here to stay. The genie's out of the bottle and it's here to stay. And so I think we have to lean into both the critical side uh, and we should be concerned about the ways in which it can disrupt things like democracies. Uh, but we also should allow the creative world, and in our case, it's the students, to interact with this as long as they understand the implications of what they're, you know, of what they're doing with the technology and the ways in which it can be misused and the ways it can actually affect their development as learners. Um, and so there's there's certainly ways uh, to engage. But one of the things I've noticed with students is they're great red teamers themselves. As Kate mentioned, there's going to be red teams associated with OpenAI and other organizations that are developing these tools. But I find students, they'll, they'll, there's even parties where students get together and try to jailbreak these kinds of things. They come up with queries to get around those guardrails, not not because they're trying to do anything really nefarious, but to show how easy it really is. And so I'm a little skeptical that they'll be able to do a comprehensive red teaming with any of these tools, partly because I've seen it with my students. They come into class almost every day. Look at how I got around this guardrail. Look how I was able to, to ask this question. And, and they're not trying to, to do anything awful. They're just showing how easy it is to break these things. Wow, those crazy kids. That's what college uh, <laughs> students do these days. They have parties to red team AI systems. <laughs> 
I don't know. I don't, I don't know if the kids are okay. Jevin West is an associate professor at the University of Washington's Information School and a co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public. I'm also talking with Aaron Heidenreich, a filmmaker and director of the documentary films The War to Be Her and Rising Suns. And Kate Metz is here with me as well, a technology reporter at The New York Times who covers artificial intelligence. Cade, what is OpenAI's use case for this stuff? I mean, why are they developing it? What do they say about what they want it to do? Well, they call this system Sora, uh, after the Japanese word for sky. So the way they describe it to me is that this represents, you know, the endless horizon of creative possibilities, right? They see this tool, like so many of the AI tools they've developed, as something that creative people and business people can use to do their jobs better. And as we've described, that is definitely part of what is happening with all these tools. And these are systems that in some ways can help people do their jobs. And as they get better and more proficient, you'll see more and more of that. The concern is that Because this technology is so powerful now, and more importantly, because it will get more powerful so quickly in the years to come, because it's built in this new way, because it gets better by analyzing data, it is going to get better quicker than any technology ever built before. The concern is that that eliminates so many more jobs far more quickly than we've seen in the past. It's yet to be seen how that's going to play out, but that's definitely something that we need to keep our eye on. Yeah, the disruption happens at a pace that we haven't experienced before. I want to get into the misinformation element of it first, and then the you know economic impact, the displacement of jobs. Jevin, you, of course, study AI's use in disinformation How big of a change is this in your field? I mean, it's something we've been talking about for a long time, the use of deepfakes and how fast they are going to be very convincing and able to dupe a lot of people. It it worries me enough that I literally lose sleep about I I wake up a lot thinking about it as the first thing in the morning and sometimes wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. And I think the problem is not just that we can't tell what's real or not, or that, you know, we'll eventually get to that point. It's that the world becomes so desensitized uh, to anything they see that they just don't think anything's real. So if something truly is real and we need to respond in a crisis event, or it is something uh, right before an election, that they might just say, well, it's a deep fake. It's probably, it's not real. I, I, don't, I just don't trust anything. And that level of trust in institutions to me is the thing, the the, the real large worry that I, I'm worried about. And there has been even just in the last couple of months, more potential evidence, at least people have written about this. It's not something I've written about, but been tracking about this, what's called the dead internet theory. This idea that the vast majority of things that we're seeing on the internet and social media is just fake. Um, and we there's in these writings, they'll provide all these examples on Facebook where people are commenting on these images that are created with AI and talking about them as if they were real. What a beautiful nature setting, not realizing that it wasn't real, even if they do realize it, just talking about something that's just not real. And, and the more and more that we move down this road, the more and more people might become less trusting of the information environments in which we engage. And we depend upon that 
in a democracy. Yeah. I mean, worst case scenarios, we've already talked about election disinformation, the ways that social media, for example, was used to promote misinformation in 2016 and 2020 and continues to be (laughs) rife uh, with this kind of junk and not just junk. We are talking about, you know, specific nefarious actors using these tools. But really long term, Jevin, what do you think? I mean, destabilizing governments like working its way into the criminal justice system in nefarious ways. What are what are the worst case scenarios here? Well, I think the worst case scenario is this could be playing out this year where we have half of the world's population going to vote um, in democratic elections. And we've already seen it in countries like Slovakia. They recently had an election where there was a deep fake video that arose right before the election. And it's hard to say for sure whether that impacted the results of that election. But the the party in which the deep fake was created ended up losing. And it's certainly an issue that that we're studying right now. But I think this is the year where we're going to see it likely. I mean, we've we've already seen it play out in many ways, but they, the, the technology wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. Um, and again, it, it's it's not even if there is a deep fake, this liar's dividend, this idea that even when there is something real and a politician doesn't want people to believe that it's real will just say it's a deep fake. I mean, just having that ability really makes it more and more challenging. And so again, it's that 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 trust uh, in these institutions and we uh, the, the whole system depends on that. And that's what scares me most. Aaron, you work in documentary filmmaking. It's adjacent to journalism. It's adjacent to what myself and Cade do um, in that you record the truth or a version of the truth. What are your concerns for a world where convincing deepfakes may soon be just a really simple and accessible text prompt away? Yeah, I have a lot of concerns. Um, I mean, I from a documentary standpoint, I believe that what attracts people to watching documentaries to see new places and new people is that they're getting insight into a situation that is real, that is something that you wouldn't have um, access to otherwise. And, and so when you see like a documentary, a lot of times you feel like you're, you're learning about a situation or a place, you know, there's, there's a knowing that occurs. Like I know, you know, what happened here in the film Virunga, you know, it takes place in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And there are these park rangers who are working to protect these gorillas. And after seeing that film, you have a real sense of maybe what's happening there. And so we all know how it is. It's like when you're talking to your friends and a subject comes up, maybe somebody brings up you know, gorillas of the Congo, like you have a real knowing you believe about the subject matter. And so when I start to think about, you know, following that line of thought of the fact that um, now anything can be made into something that looks like a documentary and people will see it, they'll actually believe they'll have that knowing that this is real. And I I do believe it can lead to a lot of chaos and social upheaval in, in, in so many ways. And it's not only about like right now and this year, which is really important, but, you know, when I think about documentaries and, and journalism, in a sense, it's creating the historical archive of what's happening in the world. So when I think ahead like 20 years and kids or whomever, they're trying to like, let's say, get on the Internet and research things. And they're like, what happened in the 1960s or what happened in the 1990s? And they're watching all these videos. What is real? Yeah. What actually happened? What didn't happen? Are they going to come across a man named Martin Luther King Jr. and know that he was real and what he was about? Or is it going to be full of all these other 
videos about other fake leaders with different messages of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it gets to a really fundamental question about what we're doing and um, documenting what we call in journalism the first draft of history. You know, how does that long term change as so much misinformation, so much synthetic material floods the zone? It's no longer just like what's available on the Internet. We're talking about infinite possible fake stuff. It's overwhelming, Kate. I mean, talk to me about safety measures here. <laughs> talk to me about what is in place to prevent this abuse. Because, again, it, the, the ideas get pretty bleak. They do. And I don't really get bleaker, but I, I guess I'm going to have to. Take us there. Go. Yeah. You know, we talked about companies like OpenAI red teaming these systems, putting guardrails on these systems. That is certainly well worth doing. And a lot of the big companies uh, are working to do that. Put watermarks um, on videos to indicate that they were generated by AI. But we have to remember that these technological ideas that have given rise to systems like Sora and ChatGPT are not contained inside companies like OpenAI and Google. These ideas are already out there, and they've been under development in companies, in academic labs, among independent researchers, through what's called open source software. And that's software that's freely available. These ideas and a lot of the tools needed to build these types of systems are not contained inside an open AI. And I, I think that that might be the bigger concern is that as time goes on and it gets easier and cheaper, because right now it's very, very expensive to build this type of thing. As it becomes easier and cheaper, it's just going to become more pervasive. And you're going to have more and more organizations who are going to put this stuff out without those guardrails. And they're going to be used in ways that are beyond the control of a company like OpenAI. So the guardrails can't keep up with how much the technology will be proliferating, is what I'm hearing you say. I mean, Meta is saying that it's going to start watermarking, for example, AI-generated content. It already labels its own AI-generated stuff, but it's going to be working, you know, these cross-industry collaborations with other social media and tech companies to try to develop an industry standard about flagging AI Again, Sora is so new, so the synthetic video component of this is is a new frontier. But, I mean, right now, is there an effective way to watermark this stuff, to identify it, Kate, across platforms? There, that's being developed, right? Well, I'd love to hear what, what Jevin says about this. But this type of watermarking is, as you indicated, already starting to roll out. Sora is watermarked, um, but... I'm not surprised that you didn't mention it because those watermarks are really hard to notice. I didn't see a single one. I mean, I watched all those videos on the Sora site and I didn't notice a watermark once. Exactly. Believe it or not, they are watermarked. Uh, when we put them on the Times, we put our own labels on them in big, big, bold letters um, because the watermarks are hard to see. And you do wonder how effective that sort of standard is going to be in the long run. Jevin, how do you view guardrails? I mean, do you think the industry can police itself? What's happening so far that has you either optimistic or concerned about how we identify this stuff? I'm definitely on the side 
of concern. And I don't think they can fully police themselves. And I don't think they would want to fully police themselves. And there are efforts right now in state governments and, at the, and federal government, not to say that, you know, policy is going to solve this. It's not. But what it does do is it sets down some norms. Um, and so in the state of Washington here, we I was actually part of uh, writing what's called, you know, a deep fake, the, one of the first deep fake bills. It, well, certainly in the state of Washington, but there's in there they exist in other states. And it really it requires disclosure if there's use of that before an election over a, spe a specified time. And it's not a perfect law. And there's others like it, but they're actually not really all that executable in some ways, because figuring out who spread it and who originated the video, these are all very difficult. And then what you do when you even find those individuals. But I think the point is to set set some norms. And, and just actually in the last you know few weeks, there's been a lot of discussions about the Defiance Act, which is going through the federal government right now. Uh, and that was that's basically um, a law that addresses this large proliferation of non-consensual sexually explicit deep fake videos. I think the the Taylor Swift video uh, really brought everyone's attention to it, but it's really been happening in high schools and middle schools all over the country. And so this sort of thing might be one of those few bipartisan efforts. So that might be a way for there to be some progress. But I'll say the, the most important thing I think that we can do as we move into this new era of technology is to just provide awareness to everyone. And that's why this show and anything we can do to get this out into the public, to make people aware. So if they see something that seems too good to be true or too bad to be true, especially during an election or uh, some sort of crisis event, that they can pause just a little bit more and think that there could be this technology behind it. Currently, Jevin, I mean, is there a way for us to identify any AI-generated image, no matter if there's metadata or a watermark involved? Like if somebody with ill intent creates something on Midjourney or something on Dali, whatever generator you want to name, and, you know, removes the watermark, removes metadata, as simple as taking a screenshot, you can remove the metadata. Can analysts tell if it is AI-generated regardless? So I, I'm pausing just for a second because it, this is it's a complicated answer. Yes, there there is technology that can identify many of the deep fakes that exist, at least at this moment. Now, there's new stuff that's going to be released with Sora and other companies probably in the next few hours. Who knows? So it'll be harder and harder to do that. But there are many efforts. In fact, I'm uh, on the board of a new nonprofit that just formed in the state of Washington called TrueMedia.org. It's being led by er uh, Oren Etzioni, one of my colleagues who ran the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence um, for many years and now is leading that effort. And the goal there is to have a nonpartisan, um, nonprofit effort to try to detect these kinds of videos and images before elections. And so that's one example. There are other companies out there like Reality Defender and actually here at Berkeley, Hadi Farid, who's a professor here, has a, has a company and has been working in this space for a long time. And they have uh, technology that can detect it. It's not really looking for watermarks. Those can be removed in most cases. Now, there's a lot of work trying, you know, figuring out how to, to make that a little bit more uh, reliable. But I see that more just as a norm that at least is, is a good start, if, if nothing else. But there is technology to detect at least what we know, uh, many of the things that we have out there now. Uh, but it also depends on the video. It depends on the medium. It depends on the quality 
of the the video that's that that you have access to. So there's all sorts of caveats, but yes, there is some technology that can detect a lot of these. That's Jevin West, an associate professor at the University of Washington's Information School and co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public, also a visiting professor at Berkeley, as you heard him mention. I'm also speaking with Cade Metz, a technology reporter at The New York Times who covers artificial intelligence. And Aaron Heidenreich is with me, a filmmaker and director of documentary films, including The War to Be Her and Rising Suns. Aaron, let's talk about the creative economy you know, one of the primary concerns that I hear from creatives is how much of artists' uncompensated work has already gone into training AI models. So thinking about IP and thinking about credit. The other is how much this stuff is going to change the economics of filmmaking and creative work and potentially eliminate jobs. Let's take that first one to start out. How big of a concern is authorship and intellectual property for you? It's a very big concern. Most artists, as you know, um, make art at great risk, financial risk, psychological risk, even physical. You know, we don't get much support in this country to, to make art as it is. And specifically with documentary filmmaking, oftentimes we have to put a lot of our own money and time and effort forward way before any money comes in the door to go travel somewhere, film something, edit it together, hire the crew, get the equipment. And this is all done out of our own pocket. But we do it because we believe in it. We believe in the film that we're making. And there's also a lot of danger that documentary filmmakers go through to to tell their story. Personally, uh, I went undercover into the Taliban-controlled areas of Northwest Pakistan to capture footage for my film. And to think that all the risk that my filmmaking team and I took to capture this very inaccessible footage, like footage that you really can't find anywhere, that we did all this work to make these contacts, to gain the trust of the people, um, to be safe along the way, um, and that that can be used, you know, without payment, without acknowledgement, and without context as to where this footage is from, or these images are from, it definitely feels like a deep violation. In terms of the economics of where everything is going, I mean, I don't exactly know. I don't think anybody does exactly what's going to happen or how fast. If I had to guess, I would think that, you know, it's going to be a process. You know, on one hand, I think potentially the jobs that might start to be vulnerable first will be ones in post-production, like VFX, CGI, motion capture world, and then make its way to production. Um, I also could see it being used in the filmmaking process first as like clips, like think of it like, you know, a stock library type thing where um, I was thinking this morning that like I could see this happening in terms of, you know, the financiers, producers, people who are always looking at the budget. They could be like, well, can't you do that in AI? Yeah. Like if I was trying to come up with a scene. Do you really need that drone shot? You can do that with AI. Yeah. Exactly. Much cheaper than hiring a whole crew and, and equipment for the day. Yeah. Kate, I want to talk about that authorship issue and the IP involved. You know, when it comes to ChatGPT, there's a number of lawsuits out there, authors saying that their work has been scraped or their likenesses and their their style has been scraped. Um, It does seem more straightforward to tell if a written work has been stolen in this way in a large language model. For example, when you can write in, uh, say this in the style of Sarah Silverman and the chat GPT spits that out, it seems clear that her work has been scraped. 
for video, it feels a little harder. I mean, is there any way to know if a filmmaker's work went into Sora at this point? There is. And we've actually published uh, some some work on this at the times with still image generators. And just as you can coax the text models into showing you aspects of their training data. So you can, you know, you know I should disclose that the New York Times has actually sued OpenAI uh, claiming copyright infringement of its articles. And um, as part of the lawsuit, the Times showed um, that it could get these models to reproduce Times articles, right? That's just a way of showing that those articles are in the training data. Like large chunks or full articles? You you can get it to do um, almost the entire article. Yeah. Um, it's a process, but you can, you, it's, again, it's just a way of showing that that is, that article is definitively in the, in the training data. And you can do this with image generators too. You can coax it into generating an image that looks exactly like Iron Man, right? Um, from a commercial movie or, or, you know, other, you know, popular entertainments that people are familiar with. It's undeniable when you do that, that those types of movies and videos or still images are part of the training set. And when I asked OpenAI, for instance, what data went into Sora, they were as usual coy about it. They said it was a mix of data taken from the public internet as well as some licensed data. So they indicate that there are some licensing deals that they've done on at least some of the videos, but it's unclear what the mix is. We'll see as time goes on how all this plays out. I mean, there's a huge incentive to just move fast and ask for forgiveness later here, though, right, Kate? Like to scrape it first, get out in front of the other competitors in the space and then deal with the consequences because you see billions of dollars flowing into this industry. And that has happened for years, right? The The only way to build these systems that we have now is to scrape up as much data as you can get your hands on from all sorts of sources, knowing that this is a legal gray area. And it is. We, we have not legally decided how to treat this sort of thing. There's copyright law out there that companies like OpenAI say will they will say it allows them to do this but it's yet to be decided. We don't have a law in place that addresses this particular t- type of technology. We don't have a court case that's been decided to give us um legal precedent. It's yet to be decided and we'll see um where we end up. Meanwhile, you're right. It behooves these companies and we have a race now to 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 produce this type of technology. These companies are going to scrape up um, as much data as they feel like they can get their hands on. Hmm. You know, Aaron Heidenreich and I know each other outside of this radio and podcasting uh, situation. And I was talking to a, a mutual friend of ours recently who runs a video production company. And he was so doom and gloom about this that he thought that AI generated video would make much of his business obsolete within five years. But this was before the Sora announcement. That's how kind of Eeyore he was about the whole situation. 
now I'm thinking, was he too optimistic? I mean, how quickly this is changing and how quickly this could push a lot of people. You know, Aaron, you mentioned storyboards. There are professionals who make storyboards right now that this could completely replace in in short order. I mean, how monumental could this be in an industry like yours, like filmmaking? Yeah, I think it can be very monumental. Um, But I, I do think that there's a difference in the caliber of production we're talking about in terms of how fast AI may take it over. Meaning that I can see for things um, that are lower budget, maybe social media content, potentially commercials, YouTube videos, corporate branded videos, things where you know already there are a lot of people trying to squash these budgets and to make them faster and cheaper, but keep the same quality. So um, this is synthetic video might be a great stand-in for, for those things. I'm not saying it's great. I'm saying from a budget perspective, the people who control those finances may want to use AI. So I do see that happening quite quickly. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I can see that happening. But I do think it's a little bit different for a different caliber of, of filmmaking. Um, you know, I, I think about the highly crafted films, um, maybe the ones that are nominated for Oscars, for example, that there's so much attention to detail in each one of those scenes and clips and performances that it's really hard to imagine, although it may get there, but it's really hard to imagine AI getting there. If you think about, for example, in Anatomy of a Fall, the Oscar-nominated film, the performance by that actress, Sandra Hewler, is so nuanced And she's sitting there in this courtroom holding for the idea that um, she's being, you see that she's holding this injustice in her because she's being accused of a heinous crime. But she's also, you know, feels in her power because she's not a victim that we learned from her backstory. And you also see that she's trying to understand the prosecutor's questions in another language. And as an audience member, I'm feeling all of this and her nuanced performance in her face. It's really hard to imagine AI in the very near future, being able to compete on that level. And and I would also say for documentaries, um, you know, the allure of documentaries is that this is real, that this happened to a real person. And it's, it's hard to imagine something like um, a documentary on, let's say, Michael J. Fox, if the audience is going to want to know, is this really him talking or is this a synthetic version? Is this really his reactions in the moment, the way that he's looking to the side or that his body's moving or is this made up? And I think that for documentary filmmaking, I actually think potentially optimistically that that might have a longer life for a while, staying away from AI because of the fact that people want to know it's it's real people. Yeah, I would hope that would be the case with journalism as well. But there's so many ways that technology has undermined the business model that I can't say for sure that that will be the case. You know, I also think as an audience member of film and art, somebody, you know, walking into a gallery, looking at a piece of visual art, I want to be in dialogue with an author. And when you are consuming AI-generated art you are so removed from that author who's just put in a text prompt versus actually shaped the clay with their hands or actually gone out and shot and worked with actors and made those choices that weren't filled in by an AI algorithm. And I do believe that there's a lack of satisfaction as an audience member in in viewing something that is so removed from authorship. 
but I am now going to be an old, you know, fogey about this stuff. And a younger generation may not feel that way. Do you have any reflections on this, Cade or Jevin, in terms of the impact on the film industry, the impact on jobs and art? Well, I can say that, uh, at least for science, where there is elements of art, we use art and we use visuals as a way of explaining very complicated models and ideas. And we've already seen the effects that it's having on scientific norms. And so there were, like, I can give examples of, of papers that have been recently retracted because an author used essentially uh, you know, mid-journey to create some figures that looked like they were figures. In this case, it was around spermicides. Um, so you can imagine the kind of vid- uh, the images that were created from, and that's how they were noted. And then they had to be retracted because this violated some of the rules that the journal had had created. And so the, it, the creative industry that occurs in other areas, like in science, is uh, we're already trying to figure out what to do. And there have been wards won by some of these uh, technologies. So earlier in 2023, an image by the name of Pseudomentia, the electrician, won the Sony World Photography Award in Europe. And it was by an individual that used uh, this technology and then said later that it was, and of course, received a lot of criticism. So there are some of these awards, at least for images that are created. And one of the things that we're seeing in our research is experimentation. That's the big thing I've seen over the last six months when we track misinformation online with this technology is the experimentation, the ability that people have to throw all sorts of images and just to see what captures people's attention that then gets reposted on Facebook. It's really eerie looking at some of the images that are getting the 4 million thumbs up. And it's something that you can do very quickly. So I imagine experimentation is going to be easier for those that are in the creative industry, but those in the nefarious industry as well. Mm. We have to wrap here. And so I'm I'm going to open up a final question for everybody and, and go around the room. How can a system like Sora and like AI generated imagery be used responsibly? And can it be used responsibly? Um, Jevin, can I start with you? I think it can if we note when it's being used. So in my classroom, I allow students to use this technology as long as they tell me that they are using it to generate that sentence or to generate that image. I think it's very important that we we do that. But at the same time, I also think that for us to use this responsibly, we have to respect the data on which this is trained. Aaron Heidenreich, your thoughts. How can it be used responsibly? Can it be used responsibly? I hope it can be. I don't know if I see a lot of evidence in the past that it will be. And I think it's really up to bringing in a lot of organizations, agencies, oversight to find a way to help people discern. And Cade Metz with The New York Times, same question to you. How can it be used responsibly? Can it be? Well, I have faith in humanity. You know, I cover this stuff. Uh, I've covered it for 10 years. I know this stuff intimately. I don't really use it myself because of all the reasons we've we've talked about. And I think it is about imparting uh, these flaws to the world at large and and encouraging people to understand the technology, but also be skeptical of it. And ultimately, I do think that humans are valuable. And I think that humans realize that other humans are valuable. And I see that not only in myself, but in my daughters who are younger and um, who have embraced technology in ways that I haven't. 
but they still really value that human contact and they value art and journalism that is created by humans. And so I think there's a lot of hope as well. All right. Ending on a hopeful note. And I hope that we don't look back and think, oh, how quaint. Cade, people value humans. That's it's cute. a possibility. <laughs> Cade Metz is a technology reporter at the New York Times who covers artificial intelligence. Aaron Heidenreich is a filmmaker and director of the documentary films The War to Be Her and Rising Suns. She also has an upcoming feature film about the underground operation of trafficking abortion pills from Mexico to the U.S. And Jevin West is an associate professor at the University of Washington's Information School and co-founder of the Center for an Informed Public, also visiting at Berkeley right now. Now, thank you, everybody. This has been a great, thought-provoking conversation. I've really appreciated all the time today and the thoughtfulness. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to SoundSide. And hey, this show is only possible because listeners support us. If you are able to give right now, check out the show notes for a link to donate. And don't forget, you can listen live on KUOW 94.9 FM Seattle at noon and 8 p.m. Monday through Thursday or anytime online at KUOW.org. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. And rewind. NPR's Line takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Line wherever you get your podcasts.